and that button. There we go. Um, welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. Those of you who are going to watch uh, the recording, a couple announcements about the Bible study, because there's always new people when we do a new book. And I can see we have some new people here tonight. Um, first of all, welcome. I'm, as I said in the prayer, I'm so encouraged people want to study God's word on a Tuesday night. Um, this is an expositional Bible study. It's a fancy word. All it means is we don't do generally subjects like angels or forgiveness or hell or heaven. We do a book of the Bible, one verse at a time. Um, and that way you don't skip anything. And we kind of go slowly and we try to go deep because we've, our theory here is that every word is God's word and we need to squeeze every bit of truth that we can out of it. Uh, if you have questions, you can always email me or a prayer request. You can email me. We did the prayers before the recording for those of you watching the recording. If you don't get the notes via email after the Bible study, it also has the link to where to watch the Bible study or hear it later. Just send me an email, say, I want the notes and I'll send them to you. Um, we already talked about that. A very key thing that isn't, doesn't apply to Zoom, but does apply to all of you is Bible studies like churches can get clicky. And so we always say, I always say, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know and introduce yourself. Someone that's sitting alone, say, hey, would you come and sit with us kind of thing? It's, it's always nice to feel that way at a Bible study. Feel free to invite other people. This Bible study is being held at Oakhurst EV Free Church, Evangelical Free in Oakhurst, obviously. Um, let's see. Uh, and my name is Joe. I think I already said that. Uh, let's see. We're going to be studying the book of Revelation. Those of you that have taught Bible studies or been to Bible studies, you probably know this is the hardest book of the Bible to teach. At least it is, in my opinion. This is my third time through it. Last time was 2013 into 2014. It was hard then. It's going to be hard now. The reason is it's one of the few books where everything isn't as clear as the other books. I still think it's very clear and we're supposed to understand it, but there are various ways of interpreting it. When there are, I'll tell you, some scholars think this, some think this. It's a little frustrating because you want to say, well, what does it mean? And I may say, I'm not sure. I kind of think it's this, but this and this are also viable options kind of thing. I wanted to just mention that. Um, uh, Revelation is the only book of the Bible where there's a special blessing for those who read it and those who keep it, study it and keep it. So that's you, that's me, all of us. If you're here tonight, I want you to know that although it seems like you came of your own free will or dialed in on Zoom of your own free will, you're wrong. I believe God draws people to study his word. And I believe that's what's happening here. So in any case, we're going to study Revelation. Um, every book of the Bible that we teach, I always start with an introduction. I apologize. This introduction is a little longer than most. I'll try to keep it short and keep you interested. But it's important um, because it's an unusual book. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Okay, that was good. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. Okay, I see you waving. Awesome. Okay, so Revelation, <clears throat> no other book in the whole Bible shows us a picture of the glory both of God and of Jesus Christ. No other book. Um, but this is the most neglected book 
of any book in the Bible. Teachers avoid it. Pastors avoid preaching on it. People avoid reading it. I'm going to read something easy, Gospel of John. Nothing against all the books of the Bible. They're all God's word, but this is a, a, a book that people avoid. If they do, they miss the blessing. The Anglican Church skips Revelation in its regular readings pretty much year round. Just too hard to understand, throw up their hands, move on. Um, they look at it as a sort of a sealed book, but Revelation 22 says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. So we are supposed to study it and read it and understand it. Um, so it's obviously the last book of the Bible. It's God's last word to humanity, where he ties up some things that were left sort of hanging with the other 65 books of the Bible. Genesis and Revelation, first and last book of the Bible, it's an amazing tie-in. I'm going to tell you about that in a second. Also, this book, Matthew 24, that chapter, the Olivet Discord, Jesus talking about the end times and what's going to happen to Jerusalem, a lot of tie-ins. But in Genesis, we have the beginning, right? The creation of heaven and earth. At the end of Revelation, we have the recreation of a new heavens and a new earth. In Genesis, sin and the curse enter. In Revelation, sin and the curse are finally and completely done with, dealt with forever. Um, let's see. In the book of Genesis, we see we have the dawn of Satan. In Revelation, there is the final and total defeat of Satan. Pretty awesome. Genesis, there's the tree of life, you remember, and um, paradise, which is lost, right? Adam and Eve kicked out. Revelation, the Bible moves toward a restoration of the Garden of Eden, called the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down. Eden in the, Old, in the New Testament is restored in the book of Revelation. In Genesis, we have the first death, remember? Death is finally dealt with completely and will never happen again, nor will sickness or sorrow, which you see in the book of Genesis. Uh, we already talked about that. In Genesis, the Savior is promised, a future Savior. As early as Genesis 3, in Revelation, he's crowned and we see him in a way we never did before. Whatever you think you know about Jesus and the other 65 books, you're going to see him in a much different, more grandiose, more majestic light as we study Revelation, I have a feeling. Okay, this is the only book of the Bible where there are four different schools of interpretation or ways to interpret this book. I'll try to go through them quickly. The, the probably least popular one is the idealist view, but there's good scholars that use the idealist view. This is the spiritual view. This view says, this book isn't talking in all 22 chapters about history, <clears throat> excuse me, stuff that's going to happen in our government or, or other countries or wars. Or, it's just all spiritual. And all it's about is um, Satan versus God, good versus evil, uh, evil versus the church, and the ongoing struggle. And so they don't harmonize any events in history. The opposite of that is the futurist view. We'll get to that. It's the fourth one. But there are people that take the futurist view, in my opinion, too far. By that, I mean this. You can see people on TV that do this. 
Bible in the right hand, newspaper in the left hand. Ah, you see this is this. Sometimes they're right. But keep in mind, during World War II, people were very sure that Nazism was the beast. Hitler was the Antichrist. Mussolini was the false prophet. The swastika was the mark of the beast. People were sure about it. He's killing Jews. He's evil. It wasn't. So there are partial fulfillments, and he's a sort of an Antichrist, but not the Antichrist. So we got to be careful when we have the newspaper in one hand, the Bible in the other. But you're probably here, and you on Zoom, because you are looking at human history going, hmm, does seem like things are lining up, doesn't it? As we go through the book, we'll talk about that. So that's the idealist uh, way of interpreting it. Um, we already talked about that. Okay, the preterist view. Preterist view, there is full and partial preterists. Preterism, the word preter means past in Latin. Preterism is the idea that the, the book Revelation was written before 70 AD, shortly before Rome came, marched on Israel, defeated Israel, burned the temple down, killed about a million Jews, took about another half million into slavery. And most, if not all of Revelation is just about that. Translation, it's pretty much all already happened. Partial printers would say, well, not all, because there's still um, the second coming of Jesus, judgment, all of that. Um, to do that, they've got to have that date of writing before 70 AD. I will show you in a second that I believe Genesis, I'm sorry, Revelation was written around 95 AD. Um, but, the, but preterism is not totally wrong because there is a thing in the, in the Bible that happens Old Testament and New called double fulfillment or multiple fulfillment. What do you mean? I mean, there are prophecies in the Old Testament that have a near in fulfillment time, uh, uh, near in time fulfillment. Uh, six years, 28 years, 40 years later, the thing happened. But then there's a distant fulfillment that's going to still be at the end times. Um, we'll talk more about that in a second. So that's preterism. Um, the historical view. The historical view of Revelation is that it's all symbolic of history from John's life to the end. And all the symbols pretty much refer to Western Europe. Kind of a narrow view, if you ask me. Um, there's a lot in the historical view. Everything bad is the popes and the Catholic Church. This view came to prominence after the Protestant Reformation. Um, the Antichrist in this view is Roman Catholicism, and the Pope. Um, the bowl judgments are judgments on the Catholic Church. So um, they look at everything through that lens. There may be some uh, uh, truth in that, um, but it's not a ma majority view. The majority view nowadays is the futurist, fourth one. It's the one I'm, I subscribe to with a side order of preterism, if you will. You know, that's like the fries to the burger, because some things predicted in Matthew 24 and that we're going to read here in Revelation did not happen close in time to when this was written, but also long in the future at the end times. OK, the futurist view. You're going to hear this word a lot. Eschatology. It just means the study of end times. 
the futurist view is that pretty much this whole book, except the first three chapters, chapter four to 19, is talking about stuff way in the future at the end of the world, end times stuff, day of the Lord stuff. Um, so uh, I'm going to skip that for now. Uh, let me just keep rolling here. So the futurist view um, in verse, in chapter one, he's, you're going to see there's a, a verse that talks about the past, the present, and the future. The futurist view says chapter one uh, is the past, two and three are the present, the rest is future. I'll show you that when we go to those chapters. Uh, we already talked about that. Mm -hmm. um, but most of uh, the, this theory is that this is the seven-year period. Most of Revelation is that seven-year period called the Great Tribulation, when there actually is an Antichrist, a world empire controlled by one human being, possessed by Satan, basically, great power, great charisma, and he is the fulfillment of, for example, uh, uh, Revelation 13. Um, in chapter 19, Jesus returns to the earth, second coming. We see Armageddon, the battle, and then a literal thousand-year millennial rule. We'll get there in chapter 20, probably 15 years from now. Just kidding. But anyway, um, <clears throat> this is the most literal of the four ways to interpret it. Um, the rules of grammar, the normal customary way words are used, um, not that they discount symbolic language because there is some symbolic language, but they use the Old Testament to make that clear. The, his, the futurist view was held very early, Clement of Rome, AD 96. Clement of Rome was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, who wrote the book. He had that futurist view. So did uh, many other church uh, fathers, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian. Okay, um, we already talked about that. Two branches of the historical, uh, I'm sorry, of the futurist way of looking at it. Dispensationalist, which basically says Israel and the church, two separate things, two separate plans for God. They're not one thing. So, dispensational people that interpret this often think of the rapture of the church as being before that seven-year tribulation. We'll talk about that as we get into it. Okay, we're almost done. Don't worry. Are you still awake? Say amen. 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 Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, I, I, we already talked about the double fulfillment <clears throat> of, of prophecy. That's going to come into play a lot. Okay, who wrote the book? The Apostle John. Um, he's a very, very old man when he writes this book. He's on the Isle of Patmos, which is sort of like an Alcatraz, but it's just a desolate island where there's marble quarries and political prisoners to shut them up but not kill them. They would put them on this island seven miles by 10 miles, not very big, desolate in the Aegean Sea, and forced labor, they would be forced laborers doing marble mining, I guess you would say. So they think they've shut John up and he ends up writing this 22 chapter book because God gives him the revelation. Pretty cool. Um, this book, about 70% of the verses in this book refer to the Old Testament. Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the Psalms, um, Exodus, Deuteronomy, 
definitely Daniel and Isaiah the most and Ezekiel, but Zechariah as well. So we're going to be looking at those to figure out what do these symbols mean, and that's very helpful. This is, in my opinion, instead of a puzzling book that you throw your hands up with, I think it's one of the most encouraging books in the Bible, if not the most. When we studied Daniel two studies ago, the thing, the takeaway I had from the study of Daniel was, wow, here's this world empire. Look how powerful they are. And they come and they go. And then here's another world empire. Look how powerful they are. They defeated that in there and they come and they go. God is in control, moving the chess pieces all the way along. It may not look like it, but behind the scenes, that's what's happening in the book of Revelation and really in all of human history. And believe it or not, in all of your lives right? Okay, let's dive in. Chapter one. Let's turn your Bible, uh, open your Bibles to chapter one. I'm reading NIV, but sometimes I will read other translations just to get a different flavor of what's being said. Revelation chapter one. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's verses one and two. So let's take it from the beginning. The revelation. Do you see that there? How many have heard the word apocalypse, right? There used to be a movie apocalypse. Now the word revelation in Greek is apoc apocalypsis and apocalypse is a revealing Something that was somewhat or totally hidden before is revealed. It's an apocalypse. So this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The main reason for this book is to show us who Jesus really is. Yes, you get a, a really good idea reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the other books of the Bible. You, they're pieces of the puzzle. But this is a pretty different view. This is the well, what's he like now that he's in heaven and he's ascended view? And it's way more glorious. The revelation, first of all, it's from Jesus. The, actually, the way it works is it comes from God to Jesus, who, and God gave it to him. See that which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. If you're saying this book is just spiritual or just the history of the church, you're missing that context, what must soon take place. We'll come back to that in a second. I can't resist saying that the revelation is from and of Jesus Christ. In that name, Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, the name means Jehovah is or God is salvation or Jehovah or God saves. <clears throat> That's his name. By the way, an angel gave Joseph that name to name his son, Jesus. Jesus is the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the child that was born 2,000 years ago, fully human. Christ means Messiah. Christos in Greek, Mashiach in Hebrew, it means the anointed one, the coming one, the son of God who saves the world. In that name, Jesus Christ, we have his total humanity and his total deity, both. Not half and half, like someone would be half Irish and half Italian, 100% man, and he uh, took on that additional nature, but 100% God. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, that's God the Father, to show his servants, that's you, me, 
all believers. Others don't get it, this book, right? It's his servants that get the message. To show them what must soon take place. So what's going on here? You say, this book is written 2,000 years ago. Did it soon take place? Well, the thing about it is, the word for soon uh, in Greek is excuse me, uh, N-T-A-C-H-E-I, T-A-C-H-E from which we get tachometer, if you have a car with a tachometer, um, has to do with something happening quickly or suddenly or soon in time, which was mentioned, or something that once it starts happening, it happens rapidly, everything starts happening. That's the feeling you get as you look at the theory that this is a seven-year period, mostly, um, the things that will happen. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it'll happen close in time to when it was written, but I do think God purposely leaves that subject, when will Jesus return, purposely leaves it a little bit cloudy for this reason. Imagine if the Bible said Jesus will return September 3rd, 2032. People living a thousand years ago, well, we, we got plenty of time. There's nothing to worry about. God wants us to live in the expectation that he could come back at any time, right? Every generation has thought so. Even the first century Christians believed Jesus is coming back soon. He promised he would come back, but the when part, we don't know. So I think God wants all generations to, to think that way. Um, so back to Jesus Christ for a minute. I forgot to mention one thing. This is a pretty different version of Jesus. Same person, but exalted, but a pretty different version of Jesus you get in the four Gospels. Let's face it, the Gospels show Jesus in his humiliation. There's no room at the inn. His parents are poor. He's born in a stable with a bunch of stinky animals. He grows up in a pretty obscure way until he's 30. And even when he's ministering full bore and crucified, it really is only known in a very, very small part of the whole world. Today, Christianity is the largest religion in the world. The Bible is the best-selling book in the world every year and the overall best-selling book ever. But it was obscure at the time it happened. So that was his humiliation. He's beaten. He's betrayed. He's crucified. He's bloodied, beaten, and killed. This is a totally different Jesus from that in the majesty we're about to see. Um, just the opposite, I would even say. Um, so watch for that as it happens. There's a reference to angels we're going to talk about in a second. I'm just going back in my notes. Um, the word, by the way, apocrypha, how many have heard of that? Catholics have extra books of the Bible. They call it the apocrypha. The word apocrypha means hidden. This book is the opposite, revelation, uh, apocalypsis, revealing we're about to be revealed, uh, shown a picture of Jesus we have never seen uh, before, especially if we've never studied this book before. Um, I think I said earlier, this is my third time through this book. It's a tough book to teach, but very rewarding. Okay, um, verse two. Oh, sorry, he made it known by sending, end of verse one, by sending his angel to his servant, John. That's not John the Baptist, that's the apostle John, the only one that's still alive at this time. I believe 95 AD is a very old man. Could have been as young as a teenager when he was hanging around with Jesus, it's thought. Uh, very young. Um, he sends his angel. That's a little strange. Uh, possessive 
uh, word there, his angel, as if it's one angel. It could be just a way of saying um, a generic term for all angels, not sure. Some have said his angel, he means Gabriel, who announced the birth and all of that, not sure. Um, but he sent his angel to his servant, John, and he waited till he was on Patmos. If you're John, you want to minister the gospel. You want to spread the news. You're on a penal colony with very few people, a bunch of hardened criminals, mostly doing whoops, doing mining work and thinking, how can God use me here? And God says, just watch me, right? Pretty beautiful. So um, verse two, who testifies, that's John is explaining. I'm just going to tell you everything that I saw. By the way, in the, in the book of Revelation, 44 times, John says, I saw, I saw. He's just telling you what he saw. In some places, he's telling you to the best of his ability 2,000 years ago, trying to describe what might be happening in 2035, where the technology is so different, he's describing it the best way he can. But he does describe what he saw. That is two things, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, the word of God, we call the Bible the word of God. He doesn't mean that. He means the message of God. Jesus is the word, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. So in a sense, he's saying, I saw the word of God. I saw Jesus Christ, both in chapter one here and throughout this book. But he says, I knew him, right? He was the most intimate one with him, with Jesus Christ, probably Christ's best friend, him or Peter, testifies everything he saw, verse two, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what he saw. He saw the proof that Jesus Christ was who he said he was while he was on the earth. And this whole book, it's the conglomerate of all the gospel, all the good news uh, of the gospel. Um, let's see, anything else we want to take there? Um, you remember that John saw Jesus's human body. He saw him be hungry. He saw him be tired. He saw the miracles, the sermons. He saw the transfiguration. Do you remember that? That was a little mini apocalypse, wasn't it? Revealing of who Jesus was when he started glowing and showed who he really was. This is much more complete as a revelation, though. Um, but he knows what he's writing is scripture. Um, he's testifying the word of God and the testimony of, there's that name again, Jesus Christ. Here's the blessing for all of you and me. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. The word aloud is in NIV because the word for read is not, I'm sitting in my bedroom reading it, although that's a blessing to read it too. The Old Testament way the service was done in a synagogue or the temple was, it would be a time when they would take out the scrolls of the Old Testament and read aloud Isaiah, Jeremiah, Genesis, whatever. Same thing in the New Testament church. They would read Colossians or the Gospel of Matthew, and then they would discuss it, much like we would a sermon. He's talking about the public reading of this book and studying of it. So blessed this is a, by the way, a member of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's seven Beatitudes. I forgot to mention the number seven, just like the gospel of John, there's so many sevens, you can't even count them. Sevens appear in this book, seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven Beatitudes. Blessed is, here's the first one, the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and keep it or take it to heart. Remember it, put it into practice. 
there's that a special blessing. There's no other book of the Bible that has this blessing, by the way. And this will be included at no extra charge to your account. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. There's that phrase again. <clears throat> by the way, the preterists get this idea of it all happened in that first century Rome from him saying those two things. Soon take place, time is near. We already kind of talked about that. So now, if you've read other books of the Bible, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, all those letters of Paul, they always start out with the name of the author and who it's to. Remember that? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the grace of God to the church in wherever, Thessalonica. So now John's going to do the same thing because he's going to write this as an eyewitness account, but as a letter. I want you to notice who the audience is, the original audience. Verse four, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And the sentence goes on, but I'll stop there. Go back to verse four. So that's John. We already said it's the apostle John, a very old man. He's writing to seven real historic churches in the province of Asia. Now, if I got a map out and I said, who can point to Asia? Everybody here would point to China and Japan and Nepal and that area of the world. This is Asia of the Roman Empire, modern day Western Turkey, the country of Turkey. Okay. These are seven churches that if you look, on, look at them on a map, they make a horseshoe shape. What does that matter? It doesn't. It's just a route. They also happen to be the seven postal regions of Western uh, Turkey, called then Asia or Asia Minor, to the seven churches. So that's the audience. He's going to name the seven churches in a second. And in fact, there's going to be a letter to each of them from Jesus. Imagine that to each church telling them you're doing this right, but you need to improve this. A few have nothing wrong. A few have nothing right in their description. So that's who it is written to. So from that, should you say, well, it's not to me, so I'm going to check out here. It doesn't matter to me. No, of course not. You can read Colossians and get a lot out of it, can't you? And that was written to that church. There's a sense in which all churches are tied up in these seven. That There are seven different types of churches, and there's something for each one of us in each one. How do I know that? Because in the seven letters to seven churches, chapters two and three of Revelation, one phrase is repeated every single time. To him, him who has an ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Meaning what? Do you have an ear? Yes, so do I. That means you and I are supposed to really listen. It's a way of God saying, listen up, this is really important for each one of those letters. <clears throat> when Jesus was on the earth, if you remember, he says occasionally, truly, truly, I tell you, verily, verily, I say unto you, if you have King James, that's another one that is, listen up, this is really important. So those are the, the seven churches. We'll talk about those when we get there. They're in the province of Asia. And he says, grace and peace to you. Grace, of course, is undeserved favor, 
undeserved, unearned good stuff that God gives us. We are saved, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace. That negates any thing on my part that I deserve it, or I earned it by my good behavior, or by my great faith. Even the faith in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is a gift from God, not of works, right? Lest anyone should boast. So he wishes them grace. That's the standing before God that even though I don't deserve it, my sins are forgiven because of Christ, and I stand as a son or daughter of the living God. And peace. Note the order. It's almost always grace and peace, never peace and grace. Why? Because you can't have peace with God or inner peace, tranquility, until you have that grace, that free gift that he's given you and I. So he's wishing them grace and peace. By the way, one was a, grace was a Jew, was a, sorry, Greek greeting and charis um, in uh, Greek and peace was shalom, which was a Hebrew greeting, kind of a mating of the two testaments or the two uh, covenants. Grace and peace to you, he's wishing them. From, not John, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Who's that, you ask? Okay, sounds like it might be Jesus. It's not, because verse five says, and from Jesus Christ. So that can't be Jesus. It's God the Father. I couldn't find a single commentary that disagreed with that. This first, who's the let, who are the letters from? Who is this whole book from? God the Father, that's first. From him who is, present tense, who was, past tense, who is to come, future tense. Those, that, that's a way of saying, Old Testament way of saying that God is eternal. Well, who made God? You ever have little kids who ask those kind of questions? Who were God's parents, Daddy? God didn't have any parents. Nobody made God. He's an eternal being. He always existed. So that's the way John, God chooses to describe himself, to show his eternality, the fact that he's always been there. Um, let's see. We already talked about that. I'm just looking at notes. Um, okay. So um, the name Yahweh, if you've ever heard Yahweh, Old Testament, is a personal name for God, just like Jesus is a personal name for the Messiah. Yahweh is taken from um, the book of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where Moses says, what, you want me to lead your people out? Who are you? Who do I say sent me if I'm going to go talk to these Jews? And God says, I am that I am. You shall say to them, I am sent you. That's a way of saying, I am, I have in, innate in myself existence. Nobody in this room, nobody on Zoom can say that. I don't have my own existence. Without my parents, there would be no me. Same for you, right? God didn't have to have parents give him birth and bring, raise him up. He is self-existent. So that's what that is all about. And the fact that he is from everlasting to everlasting. Um, he transcends space and time. He made time and space. So let's keep rolling. Let's see. Yeah, we already talked about that. He's the Lord over eternity. But you've probably already read ahead and seen, okay, we got God the Father. I get that. Verse four, him who is and who was and who is to come. 
And in verse five, you got Jesus Christ. So it would be a nice little package if we could find the Holy Spirit here and have the whole Trinity. And in fact, we do. But he's mentioned in an unusual way. And from the seven spirits, I'm still in verse four, before his throne. You say, well, that's seven spirits, seven angelic beings. Not necessarily. The way the Greek is written, it can mean the one with seven characteristics, but it's one spirit. Pretty much every scholar believes that second person, first one's the father, who is, who was, and who is to come. Second one, the seven spirits before the throne. Okay, what's the deal with that? First of all, um, seven is the number of perfection or completeness. So whoever the spirit is, he is complete in his being. That's first. Um, Isaiah chapter two, uh, sorry, chapter 11, verses two and seven. I won't make you turn there, but it mentions the seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. Listen, he's the spirit of the Lord, of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, meaning power, of knowledge, and of fear of the Lord. Five and two is 18. No, seven. Just seeing if you're awake. This is the sevenfold, sevenfold spirit of the Lord, not seven different spirits. We have here in the first chapter of Revelation, the Trinity, Jesus, the Father, and the seven spirits before his throne. Um, that's the majority opinion by far of the commentaries. Thirdly, verse five, and from Jesus Christ, which John is thinking, well, I already know who that is, but here it comes, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Okay, the faithful witness. Now, the word witness is the same word as martyr. And so the word meant witness, and it came to mean martyr, martis is what it is in Greek. It came to mean someone who died because they stood up for their faith to the point that they were willing to die. If they said, you have to renounce your faith or we're going to kill you, the person would say, go ahead. I'm not doing it. I'm not renouncing my faith. 11 of the 12 apostles died that way. John did not. Um, he's eventually, by the way, released from Patmos and is allowed to go back to Ephesus where he ministers there uh, as a very, very old man. Um, we're going to take our two-minute break in a few minutes, but let's keep rolling for a second, get through this verse. The faithful witness means someone you can count on. What he says is true. He's faithful to his father. He's faithful to the truth. He is the truth, right? John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the father except through me. He's the faithful witness. That alone ought to make you stop and praise him. What that means is he's not capricious. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to be faithful to you and to his promises on Thursday. But Friday morning, you never know. He might turn his back on you. He's faithful to you and I praise God 100% of the time. What he said is true, and it'll happen. He's the faithful witness, first of all. But what about the next phrase? He's the firstborn from the dead. Now, in just if I introduce to you, let's say I have 11 children. I don't, but let's say I did. And I said, this is David, my firstborn. You would know in our culture, that means what? 
the first one born, the oldest child, right? Not so in the Bible. Jacob is called the firstborn, and he's not the first one born. God the Father is called the firstborn over the, over the world, over creation, and he wasn't born at all. So the word firstborn means the preeminent one, the most important one. There could be seven sons, and the, the youngest one could be the firstborn, the one God chooses to be the preeminent one. So Jesus is the preeminent one, the firstborn from the dead, verse 5. What does that mean? Now, wait a minute. You say Lazarus was raised from the dead, and the widow's, widow of Nain's son, and several people in Acts, and a few people in the Old Testament. Those were not real resurrections. They were resuscitations. How do you know? Because they all died. Lazarus was raised from the dead, dead four days, raised up, praise God. I got news for you. He had two funerals. He eventually died again. Every human being dies of their last disease or accident, no exceptions, unless there's a rapture. Let's pray, amen, about a rapture, I mean. Okay, so he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one that was ever truly resurrected, never to die again. The firstborn of the dead, meaning the preeminent one over death itself, he conquered death completely. So he's the preeminent one of the book of Revelation. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John's remembering Jesus walking through the Garden of Gethsemane, getting beat up, the cross. He sure didn't look like a ruler over all the kings. He didn't look like what he's called later in this book, the king of all kings, the lord of all lords. John wants you to know right from the outset, we're talking about Jesus, and yes, he's the ruler of all the kings. If he is, then he's the one that can make a king do something. Lose power, gain power, whatever, right? You say, but there's been some awful kings, presidents, rulers of the earth, amen, of the governments, right? Sometimes humanity, we get the leader we deserve, not the one we want, right? Because society is evil, not us, but the rest of society kind of thing. Let's take our two-minute break, stretch our aging bodies. I'm just going to turn my screen off. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. All right, welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Everybody's picking out on, thank you, everybody's picking out on uh, some treats that Gene brought. Um, let's see. I wanted to tell you that a couple things. Oh, look, I got a look at this. Oh, it's key lime pie, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Jean. Where's Jean? She out there serving? I think I'll just eat it in front of all of you. No, I won't. Okay. Oh, it's good. Um, Jesus Christ, the ruler over the kings of the earth. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. What was I going to tell you? Um, the firstborn from the dead, that phrase implies you and me. If he's the firstborn from the dead, that there'll be others born from the dead, never to die again. That's you and me. I wanted to make sure you understood that. Okay, we're back in Revelation 1, um, still in verse 5 kind of thing. The doctrine of the Trinity is woven throughout all scripture. There's no one verse you can go to, but there's 
many dozens of verses that explain that God is three what? Three who's, one what? One God revealed in three persons, and the three personages are all distinct. The Father loves the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, uh, that sort of thing. Different roles, one God revealed in three persons. Thank you, Gene, for the, the key lime pie, and thank you for my piece you brought me. Um, let's see. So yeah, the doctrine of the Trinity. We'll talk more about that later in this book as well. Jesus is the ruler of the kings over the earth. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the one above every other one. Uh, dominion over every earthly king. He's the rightful owner in this book, we're going to see, of everything. There's going to be a scroll no man can open, and Jesus can open it. It's the title deed of planet Earth, and he's the only one who's the real owner. It's pretty cool. That's your Lord. Um, and after the second coming, he literally rules it all visibly. But for now, he rules a kingdom that is more spiritual amongst his followers, you guys on Zoom and you people here and around the world. Um, Let's see. Do we want to go there now? Yeah. Let's go back to verse five. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. <clears throat> Beautiful. Verse five. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth to him. Now, this is a doxology, but let's just read this first phrase to him who, by the way, in Greek, it is more loved than loves, but both are correct to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. What a great way to describe Jesus, the one who loved us. And lest you think, well, we are pretty lovable. No, you're not. <laughs> neither, neither am I. We're not lovable. While we were yet sinners, Romans says, he died for us. It's like dying for a bunch of people who couldn't care less, who are your enemies. And Jesus saw and loved us before we loved him in the relationship he made the first move that's important the one who loved us you say well sometimes you know my circumstances i'm in pain i've got trouble here um i've got a disease i've got um money problems relationship problems whatever it may be i'm very worried about the way the country's going and does god love me and the answer uh, comes back, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let that sink in. Can I read it again? God shows, he demonstrates. Could you demonstrate your love? Yes. Here's some key lime pie. She demonstrated love, right? This is a little better than key lime pie. No offense. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for in our, instead of our place. What we deserved, he took. The perfect life of sinlessness we were supposed to live, we messed up, he didn't. The horrible death of punishment and separation from God you and I deserve, he took in our place. Translation, as a result, having been shown that kind of love, we owe him everything. 
right? There's nothing that you have, a talent, a physical thing, an ability, whatever it is you have, your family, your friends, anything you have, add it all up. There's nothing in that list that God didn't give you. Every good and perfect gift, James says, comes down from the Father of lights. He gave you everything. You and I owe him everything. So if you serve a little bit in the kingdom of God at church, or give a little bit of money, or your time, or your talent, or key lime pie, for example, that's just giving back what's already his. It's not yours, and you're giving it to God. It was his. It's on loan to you, and you're giving it, offering it back to him. Okay. I'm hoping other pie will show up next week. No, just kidding. Just <laughs> Uh, six months from now, we'll be in like chapter 10 and we'll all weigh 500 pounds, barely be able to get through the door. Okay. The way he loved us. Um, uh, let's see. He, to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The picture is of being freed as a prisoner. What, what, were, we being a, what were we a prisoner to? Our sins. Some places in the Bible, we are called slaves of, wait for it. Satan. You say, oh no, not me. Listen, the Bible presents the case that if you're not a believer, you're a slave to Satan, whether you know it or not, you're a slave to sin. The proof is as an unbeliever, go ahead, stop sinning and leave a, live a righteous life. Good luck. You might make it an hour, might make it a day or two, forget it. Without the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out, without a savior to die for us, it, it ain't never going to happen. No how, no way. Okay. So he saved us, freed us from our sins by his blood. Do you see that? Now, I want to explain that in the Bible, when you see he saved us by his blood, um, uh, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't save anybody, but the blood, blood of Jesus cleanses us from sins. Listen, don't get too hung up on the blood. You say, no, we should listen. In the Bible, the word, when you see that phrase talking about salvation in regard to Jesus, here's what it means and doesn't mean. It doesn't mean he bled. Because if it did, somebody could have cut him and he could have bled for an hour and gotten real weak and they could have bandaged him up and he bled. You know what it means? He died, right? He shed his blood. Um, in fact, in such a total way that when he appears in Luke 24 and they think they're seeing a ghost and they're freaked out, he says, handle me and see a spirit does not have, listen, flesh and bone. It doesn't even mention the blood. It's as if I shed all that for you guys. So when you see blood, it's not he bled, they cut him and he bled and they patched him up and he lived on. It means he died. He gave it all kind of thing. His blood could cleanse us from sin and his blood only. There, um, there are those who say, well, somebody else could have died and done the same thing. Wrong. The requirement was that the Messiah had to be perfect. No sin. How about 99%? No, perfect. He's the only one, right? In, Ju in Judaism, every uh, sacrifice was a covering for sin, temporary. The family brings the lamb. This lamb is shed on behalf of the Smith family. They slit the neck. Judaism, I said it last week, if you were here, was a bloody, bloody religion. One Passover, they counted about 250,000 
lambs slaughtered one Passover, one per family. That tells you how many people were there. Bloody. The Bible, Old Testament and New, says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. The life is in the blood. The wages of sin is death. If you're going to pay for sin, you got to pay with blood. The lamb in Judaism had to be perfect. No sin. That's why Jeff here or Tom here or Ken or Joe could never die on a cross and pay for anybody because I'm a sinner. I need a savior. So that's why the blood freed us from our sins by his blood. Verse six, and has made us to be, now here's the first time we're mentioned, a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Go look at verse six again. So beyond the washing by his blood, that would be enough, right? If we could just be slaves of his or just acquaintances, that would be cool enough. No, he makes us a kingdom. Colossians 1.13 says he makes us kings and queens to reign with him. Queens is implied. Rule, we rule with him in the millennium. So if there were, if we're a kingdom, there's got to be a king and it's not you and it's not me. That's pretty important. Some people pray in such a way that they're ordering God around and it's, that's not the right way to pray. Central phrase in the Lord's prayer, thy will be done. You know better than me. That's what that's saying. Thy kingdom come, come to earth in the way it is spiritually, make it come physically. Okay. So we are Verse six, made us a kingdom and priests to serve his God and father. Okay, stop right there. If you know your Old Testament, we got a little problem here. Because Jesus has three offices in the New Testament. Prophet, priest, king. You say, what's wrong with that? Prophet, one who preaches the word, he did. Or foretells the future, he did. Priest, one who represents God, one who can offer sacrifices, one who has access to God. Kings, one who rules. You got it? Those three offices, prophet, priest, king. So what's the problem, Joe? God forbade in the Old Testament any one man. You can never be a king and a, a priest. Can't do both. Too much power, that's religious power and political power. By the way, the Antichrist is both religious and political. Typical Satan, I want to take over, right? Well, why did anybody ever try to be both priest uh, and king? And there's a few. King Uzziah in the Old Testament uh, of Judah paid a penalty, tried to be both roles. Well, what's the problem, Joe? Jesus can play both roles priest the ultimate high priest he it's so weird because in the the whole book of hebrews is about this the fact that there's all these roles in the old testament religiously in judaism and if you look carefully at them jesus checks every single box he's our high priest what does the priest do he offers the sacrifice but wait, he's also the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the priest that offers the sacrifice. And guess who lays down on the altar? It's him. He's also the lamb. He's also the, the offering, if you will, offerer and offering. Um, let's see. So, but he's not saying this about him, although those things are true. He's saying it about you, that we are a kingdom. We are to be kings and 
priests in what way? We offer ourselves back to him as sacrifices, number one. We have access that it was unknown in the Old Testament to God the Father through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, you occasionally see prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, um, um, Isaiah, who else? Elijah, prophets who the Bible says, and the Holy Spirit came upon Elijah to prophesy, thus saith the Lord, and the Holy Spirit came and went. Temporary anointing. David is anointed. He's writing Psalms. He's writing scripture. And he sins with Bathsheba. And do you know what he prays in his prayer of repentance and remorse over his sin? Please, God, don't listen. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You don't have to pray that. It's a permanent indwelling that you have as a believer. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. Listen, Old Testament saints, Jewish believers, even the prophets would have been so envious of you and I. You mean you have the Holy Spirit 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Does he take any time off? Never. Never leaves me. That's an amazing thing. Holy Spirit illumines the Bible so that we can understand it. It's, he's a louder conscience, right? Don't do it. Don't think that. Makes you uncomfortable. It's a wonderful thing. We could go on and on about the Holy Spirit. But we are kingdom, a kingdom together and priests, priests individually. By the way, that's another love evidence that he gives all that to people that don't deserve it. And what are we there to do? The end of verse, the middle of verse six, he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve our own interests. Is that what it says? To serve our desires and whim? No, to serve his God and father. If you serve your own interest, you will have an uncomfortable, uneasy feeling your whole life that something's not right. The only time that goes away is when you start serving God, there's a fulfillment that we can't get no matter how much money you make, how much success, how much fame, power, whatever. We serve his God and father. And then John can't resist saying to him, that's God, the father, be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now that's not giving him the glory or the power. He's already got it but we're ascribing it to him, placing ourselves under that power, under that glory, saying that the power and the glory are not mine, they're yours. Uh, it's a beautiful prayer. Okay, let's keep rolling. I think you're still awake. Amen means so be it. Oh, amen. I haven't heard any snoring, so that's good. Amen means so be it. Yes. Okay, so um, here comes God the Father is going to speak in verse eight. Um, but I'm going to put a little asterisk, by the way. Um, but first, let's look at verse seven. I couldn't wait to get to verse eight. Verse seven, behold, or look, exclamation point. He's coming with the clouds. Who? Holy Spirit? No. God the Father? No. There's only one coming with the clouds. We're going to look at some verses in a second. Who is it? It's Christ, Jesus, right? Look, he's coming with the clouds. By the way, this verse is the theme of the whole book of Revelation. If you remember nothing else tonight, remember that. Not even the key lime pie should take precedence over. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. 
Okay, this is the theme of the book, like we said. It's the key verse in the whole book of um, Revelation. Keep your finger here. We haven't taken a detour. Go to the book of Daniel. You say, how do I get there? Take a long left. Go all the way through the New Testament. Go to about the middle of the Bible. You'll come to either Psalms, Proverbs, maybe Isaiah. Just start turning right from there um, past Isaiah. And you want to get into the past Jeremiah, the minor prophets. So after Jeremiah, find the book of Daniel. And what we're looking for is chapter seven. I want you to see this in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter seven. Whoops. Okay. Wrong way. Oh yeah. Past Ezekiel as well. Daniel seven. If you can't find it, that's okay, but you won't get an A in the class for today. Daniel seven. Um, this is a, a vision that Daniel has. Let's pick it up in verse um, 13. In my vision at night, I looked and behold, there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the, this is a title for God, ancient of days, and was led into his presence. Two different beings, the son of man, ancient of days, okay? Uh, both parts of the Trinity, father, son and father. The son of man, notice he's like a son of man. What does that mean? A son of man would be a human. So he's human, like a human, but he's more. Son of man becomes a title, Jesus's favorite title for himself, and a title for the Messiah all through the Old Testament and into the new. He calls himself the son of man. Okay. Before me was like one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. There's where we get that one of the places. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Well, so is this dude, Daniel. Verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. How, how widespread is the power? All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. If you have a kingdom that will never be destroyed, you can't die, right? Because then it's over. When the king dies, somebody else is going to take his place. It's a picture of somebody that's an eternal being that's reigning, if you will. Okay, now keep your finger there. From Daniel, take a right and go to Zechariah. Zechariah, keep turning to the right. There it is after uh, Haggai and Habakkuk. Zechariah chapter 12, I think it is. Let me look at my notes. Verse 10, if I'm not mistaken. Zechariah, yes. 12.10 and then 12.12. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. God talking. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's Jewish people, a spirit of grace and supplication. This is at the end of the world, right before the end. Jewish people will suddenly, the light bulbs will go on and they'll realize, oh no, this Messiah that was crucified, this Jesus character was the guy. Watch. I'll pour, pour out on them a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on, what's the next word? me. Wait, you said it's God talking. That's right. They will look on me, the one they have, what? Pierced. You mean like hands, feet, side? Yes. 
They will look on me. They're going to finally see who Jesus is before the end. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great like the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself with their wives and themselves, the clan of the house of David and of their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives. Great mourning in Israel. Why? Because they'll realize, oh my, for whatever length of time, I'll say it as if it's going to happen in the next 10 or 20 years, for 2,000 years, we Jews, I'm not Jewish, but we Jews said, nope, it's not him. And it was. Romans 9 talks about the Jews in the past. Roman, 10's, Roman chapter 10 talks about the Jews at the time Paul's writing, the present. Romans 11 says a time is coming when the lights are going to go on. They've been blinded for a while. They're suddenly going to go, oh, it's him. Some of you, like me, know people that are Jewish who believe in Jesus, right? Messianic Jews, completed Jews, whatever the name, I don't care. They're Jewish people that know the Old Testament and can read Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 and go, who else could it be? They pierced my hands and my feet in Isaiah 53. In any case, um, that's where we get this coming with the clouds, uh, with the ancient of days. Go back to uh, Revelation, if you will. Oh, no, you know what? Let's, let's, the first time we'll do this. We're going to do this a lot in Revelation. Let's go to Matthew 24. First gospel, Matthew chapter 24. Jesus starts teaching his disciples. If you have a red letter Bible, Jesus's words are in red. Almost the whole chapter is red. Chapter 24 of Matthew. I'll give you a second to find it. What he does in that chapter is he answers three questions. They ask him three questions. The problem is he weaves the answers together so masterfully. Sometimes you have to ask, which, which question is he answering here? Sometimes it's all of the above. I'll just warn you. It's an amazing chapter. So he's, they, they mention to him the buildings of the temple as he's leaving. He's about to get crucified. And they say, isn't this awesome? Look at this Jewish temple. So as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, here comes the questions. Verse three, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, oh, I should read verse two. Sorry. Do you see all these things? Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. It's all coming down. It'd be like going to Washington, D.C., going, look at the White House and the and the Washington Monument and the where Congress meets and somebody telling you it's all going to come down. There won't be even one stone on another. You'd be like, what? So here comes the questions. Verse three. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What happened? What he just said, destruction of the temple. It happened about 40 years later, 70 AD. The Romans march on Jerusalem, take the city over, burn the temple down, but it's still standing. Then the Roman officials realize wait a minute, there's tons of gold that were lining the walls. It's stuck between the rocks. So they take the rocks apart one by one to get the gold. Did they know they were fulfilling prophecy? Heck no. But were they? Absolutely. Do you see what I mean? That he's moving the chess pieces, even though the chess pieces think I'm doing this on my own to get the gold. God's going just like I told you to, right? 
When will these things be? Question one. And what will be the sign of your coming, the second coming, and of the end of the age? Three questions. What will be the sign of the end of the world, the sign of your coming, and when will this destruction happen? For the rest of that chapter, and no, we're not going to study Matthew 24 now, but in the course of reading Revelation, I encourage you, read Matthew 24. They meet together so well. But he talks about in Matthew 24... There'll be false Christs and false messiahs. There'll be um, wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and all kinds of amazing signs, right? I'm skipping down. He's talking about the seven-year tribulation. He's weaving into that answer the fact that there's going to be the destruction of Jerusalem as well. Remember, he's answering three questions. So there's a great tribulation. Look at verse 29 of Matthew 24. Are you still there? Say amen. amen. Okay. Immediately after the distress of those days, that word is tribulation. That's what it means. Some of your translations have that. Verse 29. When is this again? After the tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, some things are going to happen. Like what, Jesus? The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, what time? After the distress, the tribulation, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all of the nations of the earth will mourn, sounds like Zechariah. They will see the Son of Man coming on the what? Clouds of the sky, sounds the same as Revelation, with power and great glory. And what's he going to do then? And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they'll gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. I believe that's the rapture. Oh, we don't like after the tribulation. I didn't write the book. Call Matthew, write to him. When you get to heaven, you can yell at him. You can yell at Jesus if you want, but it won't do any good. After the tribulation, he'll send his angels with a loud trumpet They'll gather his elect from the elect is chosen from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Go back to Revelation. Now that I've bummed everybody out, let's keep reading. Are you still awake? Everybody goes, no. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. With the clouds. By the way, he left with the clouds. Acts chapter one, he ascends to heaven and is, disappears, goes up with the clouds. He said, an angel says to James, Peter, John, all the apostles are standing there like idiots looking up and suddenly angels are here. They don't even know it. They're just watching him go. And they go, men of Galilee, why are you doing that? Why are you watching him that way? Jesus, who you saw leave, will come back the same way. What do you mean same way? In the clouds, visibly, not invisibly, visibly, right? Okay. The only difference is, and I don't have time to chase this down now, is two things. Clouds, Old Testament, Shekinah glory. God manifested himself in the Exodus in a, a pillar of cloud, which was the glory of God, the Shekinah glory. So in a sense, those clouds are the glory of Christ as he returns and as he goes. But the difference is when he comes back, strangely enough, the clouds are, wait for it, Christians believers. You say, where do you get that? I'll have to show you another time because I'm trying to stay in Revelation and I'm getting off on rabbit trails. But he brings with him 
clouds of witnesses, all the believers. What do you mean? All the believers that have ever died up till that time have gone to heaven. Where are their bodies, Joe? In the graves. Some of them have decayed. Some are freshly dead. They're dead. Where are their spirits and souls? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. But that's not the end of the story. He's got to reunite the two. They're going to come out of the graves, reunite with the spirit and soul, and become like Jesus, glorified bodies. How many are totally confused? Okay, good. Let's keep rolling. With the clouds, he's going to return the same way with that same Shekinah glory. We already read that. We won't go there now. We already went to Matthew 24. Okay, go back to Revelation. Look, he's coming with the clouds. See verse 7? And only a few people will see him. Is that what it says? Every eye is going to see him. The Jehovah's Witnesses predicted Jesus' second coming seven or eight times. I've lost count. Okay. And every time they were, okay, 1914. Okay, no, it's 1918. Okay, no, 1919. No, 1925. You know what they eventually said? He did come back in 1914 invisibly. Every eye will see him. Sorry, eh, no points for that in final jeopardy. Every eye will see him. At the second coming, even though the earth is a globe, and if he comes and stands on the Mount of Olives, we're halfway around the earth. How would we possibly see him? I don't know. But every eye is going to see him. And there'll be two attitudes, right? The unsaved people are going to go, oh, no. Hide us, right? They say it in Revelation. Let the rocks fall on us and hide his face from us. Oh, no, it's my dad. He's home and I broke two windows. He's going to beat my behind. Oh, no. Or if you're a believer, you'll be going, yes, it's finally here, right? Not with fear, with great joy. Two different attitudes. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And then he's got to mention even those who pierced him. Now, are you saying that's the Jews? I am in context. Are you blaming the Jews? No. Who pierced Jesus? The Jews set him up for that trial. It's their fault. The Romans pierced him. It's their fault. I sinned like crazy in my life. It's my fault too, right? So I'm not picking on the Jews. In context, he means the Jews, the ones who pierced him. Even the ones who pierced him and all peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, either in fear or for the Jews, he's saying they're going to mourn because we missed it for 2000 years. I can't believe he's taken us back in mercy. Pretty amazing thing. Every eye will see him. Will it be on CNN? Yes. MSNBC, even MSNBC. Yes. Fox News. It'll be. On the internet, watch it live. It'll be on instant replay over on a loop, right? No, it'll be all be over. But anyway, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, verse 8. Who is, and who was, and who is to come. Notice the phrase, the Almighty. Can you get higher than the Almighty? No, that's God the Father, okay? Says the Lord God. How do you know that? Because he's, he's called that earlier in this chapter. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Don't worry about this. Some of you thinking, no, I think it's Jesus. He just mentioned Jesus. It's God the Father. However, 
turn to Revelation chapter 22. I use this verse with Jehovah's Witnesses all the time. They say Jesus is a God, small g, not almighty. So I make them read that verse we just read, the Alpha and the Omega, and they, I say the first and the last, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And I say to Jehovah's Witnesses, who is that? And they'll say, it's Jehovah God, God the Father. You're right. Now go to Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I, behold I'm coming soon. I stop them right there and I say, who's coming soon? Jehovah? And they say, no, Jesus second coming. Okay, so the subject is Jesus. Red letter in my Bible. Behold, I'm coming soon. Yes, my reward is with me. I will give to everyone according to what he's done. He's going to reward faith and punish sin. Yes, I am the, oh no, verse 13. The what? Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You said earlier the Alpha and the Omega was God the Father. So either this is God the Father, or you're right, it's Jesus, and he is the Almighty. You see the logic there? Did I lose you? All right. We're just about out of time. We didn't get that far because the teacher babbles, but um, it's important. We'll look at verse eight a little more. I got a couple of things to show you. Um, but anyway, let's pray and then we'll get out of here. And if you have questions or comments or want to invite somebody, go for it. Let's pray. God, thank you for this amazing revealing unveiling, revelation, apocalypse of Jesus, and the blessing that comes from reading it and studying it. I feel blessed already. I pray others are growing and learning and feel the same way, God. May we see the whole gospel and Jesus in a new way, the amazing awesomeness, the glory of your son, Jesus, as we've never seen him before, the majesty, the power, the sovereignty. Help us to remember these things when our circumstances are less than perfect that you do love us. Ultimately, it'll all be a distant memory, the pain, the anxiety, the fear. And instead, what we'll have is absolute glory with you, Father. We love you. We love your son, Jesus, your Holy Spirit. Thank you. We are rich beyond imagination. Bless these truths to our hearts and minds. May they change the way we view the world and the way we live, God. Bless this study and revelation and each one here, Father. We pray these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here on Zoom. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone that you don't know, because that's the most important thing. Thanks for being on Zoom. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time. God bless you.